I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to River Cafe Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. When my good friend Duro Olowu calls me, I never know if he's on his way to show his collection in Paris, curate an exhibition in Chicago, visit a wool factory in Tuscany, or just sitting down to have a plate of spaghetti batarga in the River Cafe. For Duro is a man of many parts, fashion designer, art director, mentor to young entrepreneurs, and a passionate lover of food. Right now, we are in my kitchen. I'm wearing one of his beautiful bright dresses, and he is grating batarga. We'll have a talk about everything he is thinking and doing over a long lunch. Then he will tell me he has to go. And as always, I will try and persuade my friend to stay with me just a little bit longer. Okay. Okay. All right, we are so done. Action. So action. <laughs> Spaghetti batarga. Spaghetti batarga. So batarga mm. is... I think it's one of the great delicacies of life, really. You know, it's identified completely with Sardinia. Yeah. It's the dried row of the mullet, of the gray mullet. And there is batarga of tuna, but we always use the batarga of the gray, gray mullet. mullet. And it's wonderful. And here's how to cook it. 250 grams of spaghetti, three tablespoons of olive oil, two garlic cloves, peeled and finely chopped, 50 grams of fresh flat-leaf parsley, very finely chopped. One dried red chili, crumbled. 100 grams of botaga, coarsely grated. Juice of one lemon. Those are the ingredients. You cook the pasta in a generous amount of boiling salted water, then drain thoroughly and return to the saucepan. Meanwhile, heat the olive oil in a separate saucepan and fry the garlic with the parsley and chili for a few seconds. Add to the drained pasta, then stir in most of the batarga. Yum. Serve immediately with the remaining batarga on top, or more, <laughs> plus a squeeze of lemon. How wonderful. Oh, thank you, Dero. Why batarga? It's interesting because it's a difficult one whenever anyone asks you for a favorite anything. It's always best to think like a child and go for the first thing that comes to your mind because there's a reason. During the lockdown and every time the lockdown was lifted, one of the greatest things that I got to do with friends was to sneak out to River Cafe. And thinking about the food, it was the pizzetta with talaggio and thyme mm -hmm. or the botaga. And the botaga had to come up top because it's a very, very... I mean, the pizzetta is difficult to make, but good botaga spaghetti is the most difficult thing. I would never try to make it at home. And that's why I always look forward to having it at River Cafe. But have you been to Sardinia? Have you I've, I went there? to Sardinia twice, uh, once in my teens and once in the early 2000s. I loved Sardinia. You know, you arrive in Santa Esmeralda, no? And then you just think, okay, we drive inwards, <laughs> you know? And there you just drive past this wonderful, dry, almost brutal, but beautiful terrain. And 
everywhere you stop and eat, you start to feel the essence of this this part of Italy that you know has a history of severe poverty and very harsh conditions. It sort of has that feel. So to me, Spaghetti Botaga reflects that terrain and the colors and just the coarseness, but delicious coarseness. I think if you go to Sardinia, Botarga is so associated with Sardinia. It is the food of Sardinia. Yeah. And I don't think I'd ever had it until I went to Sardinia. And then you have it everywhere. You yes. have it on salads, you have it in you know pastas, you yeah. have it on other fish. And in a way... For me, eating botaga, it wasn't the first time I'd had spaghetti botaga, but it was different. It was a revelation because you really understand how it's so basic in one way, you know, it's raw. But at the same time, it's not caviar, it's raw. But it's so sort of respected and beautifully treated. And I love that. Of course, I've eaten it in Milan a lot where I go, and also in Perugia where I have a factory that makes my knitwear. But... I mean, I haven't been to Sardinia for many years, but I have my little Sardinia at the River Cafe. So yeah, we do. <laughs> it is. It's also, I think Sardinia is so wild. Isn't it? it is. You can imagine the coast, but then it's so, the interior is like the Wild West. And what about the food of your country? Tell me about growing up in Lagos. In Lagos, yeah? yes. And, you know, the food in Nigeria, first of all, I had a Jamaican mother, but my mother learned to cook all the Nigerian food, and I'm Yoruba. So we had this household where we had... Nigerian food, all sorts. It's very meat-based, I have to say, at least from the region that I'm from. So we had this real mix. So we'd have Nigerian food, you know, pounded yam, rich vegetable sauces with meats or fish. But then we'd also have rice and peas, you know? And my mother would make the best coconut candy and she would bake and she would make rice and peas. We didn't have ackee and sawfish so much, but we had jani cakes, which... (laughs) <laughs> Just the, uh, they're almost like little buns that are fried. They're like little uh, flour buns, but the dough has to be just right, and you stick them in the oil, and they quick fry. And usually we'd have them with scrambled eggs on the side, but in Jamaica you have them with ackee and saltfish sometimes. But we had this mix. So your mother came from Jamaica. Yeah. And how old was she when she came? Well, no, my parents met here. My father, she came to study nursing on the Windrush. Oh the Windrush generation, and my father came to study law and he trained as a barrister. That's how they met. Had two children here, my oldest brother and sister, and then went back to Nigeria in 1959, so just before independence. Right. So that's how they met and they went back. So, But, you know, my extended family on my mother's side, a lot of them worked on the trains and in car factories here, in yeah. Derby, in London. Yeah. So, you know, we would always come on holiday and then we would be staying in central London, but we would visit them. So I also had that sort of incredible experience of being with my cousins, some of whom were Rasta. Yeah. And I was completely engulfed in that. Food was an important part of that, but mostly things like Jamaican patties. Because yeah. Yeah. whenever we'd have the chance to visit, my older cousins would say, come on, let's go for a walk. And you'd stop and get the patties. So but my parents were very, very, food was very important. Was it important to them? Very was it part in the house. Of, did you yeah. sit down for dinner Absolutely, every, every night? Absolutely, every meal. Every meal. Tell me about the lunches and the dinners. What well, you-, you know, of course, in the day, when I was in, at school in Nigeria, in the day, you, you know, you go to school, but we all have breakfast. And did then, you-, you know. What um, would you have for breakfast? I mean, funny enough, the big thing were like bacon and eggs. Mm. 
like a full English uh, breakfast. Uh, Bacon and eggs, toast, or um, my mother used to make a great thing. I mean, baked beans, which aren't the best, but they were delicious. On brown sliced bread toasted with a thin sort of layer of butter and sautéed tomatoes. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, there was this thing of you couldn't, we could talk at the table, but, you know, if you sat down, the table was set, everything was set. And my mother always cooked. The other thing, which was incredibly rare, because... You know, my father's this old school guy. My father cooked amazingly well. I remember you telling me yeah. about your father cooking. Oh, no, and he Tell insisted. me what what did he cook then? Well, what, he cooked he... Nigerian food really well. Everything. Like what? A fori roe, which is a, a sort of particular vegetable that has a bitter taste with different kinds of meats or fish. My father loved fresh fish. He loved catfish. He loved um the equivalent of sea bream. You know, and there were always people in the huge market, the special fish ladies who were the queens. But my father loved to cook. And sometimes on Sundays or whatever, he'd say, I'm cooking. And what struck me was my mother was an incredible cook, really incredible. But when my mother cooked, the kitchen could look like a bomb mm, hit it. Mm, mm. And then there'd be a big cleanup. But my father, as he'd be cooking, everything would be washed and put away. Your father would? Yeah. And I watched that. I mean, I learned a bit from that, but... Do you know where he learned to cook? I mean, if I say, my father's the son of a king. Nobody taught him. My father taught himself. Yeah. My father taught himself. Nobody taught my father to cook. And he came from that sort of really, you know, he's very quiet about it, but, you know, you know that he, you know, this is something that he just felt he loved and he took pride in. He didn't do it often, but he did it and he loved to cook. And sometimes he would meet us here on holiday. If we were here, he'd come. And he would go on special trips to certain markets where you could get Nigerian ingredients and cook. There was a comment that you just mentioned that I don't want to let slip. You said your your father was the son of a king. I don't think I've ever met anybody. Well, I I don't hang around the royal family very much. No, no, no. But, (laughs) you know, know, my grandfather is an Oba, you know, of a certain region. And my father, so what I'm saying is my father, Oba Kinsiroji, my grandfather was this guy that we just, I never really looked at his face. We just bowed to him all the time. He was a wonderful man. And he died in a hundred and something. Very stoic, but very wise. Mm. Tough, but very wise. We used to go up and see him. He would come to Lagos with his whole entourage and stay wow. with us. Really? And what would, what would food be like in his oh, house? He would, would you only go to eat his... my mother's food. He would only eat my mother's food. Oh, really? Yeah, which was the biggest compliment considering, you know, There, we would eat what they cooked. We usually used to go for the New Year. So we'd go three days before New Year. Yeah. There'd be cars full of fireworks for the kids in the village. (laughs) And then, then, but I don't really remember the food. It's strange. I think because we were just, you know, it's rural, rural. And, you know, you go crazy. It's like children just being allowed to run. So food was really not something that was on my mind. But again, there was a lot of meat and a lot of fish. We didn't eat chicken. Mm, In the village. And I asked my father, we ate chicken at home. But later he stopped in his 60s and I said, why? And he said, there's this whole story. Basically, chicken saved the village hundreds of years ago. The enemies were coming. People ran up to the mountains. I don't know if this is true. Mm, It's a fable. They ran up into the mountains. When they got to the village, they were looking for the people. But all the footprints leading to where they had escaped to were visible But when the villagers were leaving, they let loose all the chickens 
because they didn't want them to be captured. And the chickens ran all over the footprints and scattered them. So they're held in high esteem. I see, they're held in high esteem. Yeah, so in my village, they don't eat chicken, generally, you know. I love chicken. (laughs) I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. When I see you in the River Cafe, you usually come with one person, yes. I think, <laughs> and you're very engaged. And I think that, how does that work when you're designing? Do you have pins in your mouth and can you eat or do you do you not eat or do you do you take your team out for meals or do you I don't have do a you, team which uh, is very you know I have to say I have a very very small team and therefore it's sort of not isolated I don't make all the things I have someone who cuts them properly for me I can do the, the uh, early things but sometimes if I'm working really intensely you look and it's three o'clock and you think gosh I haven't had lunch but then I just save it up for supper, you know, for a really good supper. So I usually, you know, breakfast, I can just have a coffee and some homemade granola. But lunch now, yes, I will stop. And especially during lockdown, you know, you make something. Mm. And sometimes it's yesterday's pasta sauce with fresh pasta (laughs) or a salad. I I used to think I didn't have the patience to make really good salads, but I, I do. You need patience to make a good salad. Need patience to make food. You need patience, yeah. When you cook at home, do you find it relaxing to cook? Do you find it's a way of kind of winding down? Absolutely, because you do switch off. I mean, when you're trying to get um, the peel off the garlic, things like that, concentrating, tomatoes, like getting the core out is always a chore for me. I've tried to focus. But with everything else, I do not have, I was reading out, your eloquently written recipe, but I never know how much of anything to put in. I just go with my gut. Do you go with your gut? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what about Chicago when you were there? Tell me about the show. Because it involved the city, it involved culture, it involved design and art. And Yeah, well, you know, the director, Madeline Greenstein, asked me if I would do a show of my work. And I thought, 
Yeah, I mean, I love what I do, but I just felt, you know, there's more. I, I've curated art shows, uh, contemporary art shows, and I said, I wouldn't do that, but I'll do this. And I said, I'm going to curate because Chicago is an incredible city that has incredible people and inc the most incredible things in the world. Very quietly, it's all there. And basically, I decided to do a show that shows people in Chicago what they have. So the MCA, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, where I did it, I picked a lot from their collection. But then I asked every major museum there, from the Art Institute, the Terra Foundation, into it, high-low, if I could borrow works. And everyone says, oh, they'll never allow. You know, it's very competitive. They all did. And, of course, some of the people with the greatest collections, I'd never even seen some of their collections, but all of them opened their doors to me, usually over breakfast, lunch, or dinner, to look at their collection and borrow anything. So, really... I sort of was left with this encyclopedic from David Hammonds to Magritte to Lynette to Louise Nevelson to um, Michael Armitage, Bryce Martin, you name it. I mean, unbelievable. Mm. Mixed with Malik Bay, mixed with... It was all inspiring. And it all came together because they were freaking out about the size of it and the number of works. But I think it's the same thing with you when you're cooking. The way I approach my curatorial practice with art, which is why I do it, is I don't believe in putting things in categories because I always think ingredients go together when they're together if they're right for each other. So my approach is it can be the biggest or the most revered artist mixed with people that are as incredible artists but not known and I don't like the word or use the word outside artist because it's so patronizing, really. It's almost the way women artists were called women artists in the 70s. And you put it all together. And at the end, I would walk through the gallery about an hour or two before, and it was six huge galleries, you know, filled with work, 300 works. And there was a calm. And that's how I know it's fine. So yes, I wanted to really show that city because I think a lot of people borrow, 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 have the shows that involve works from all over the world, so much planning and, and finance and whatever, and, and they have incredible things in their cities that the public don't see. And I think, why do people give all this art? You know, these families and people that have donated art to these museums, it's for the public to see. But it also sounds like you had a personal relationship with the people that gave. And then you had that tiny little sentence of we did this in over lunch, dinner, yes. breakfast, because I think that's also interesting how people use or go to a restaurant. Yeah. And so maybe do you think that made them more relaxed with you, more, more yes, generous with you? Yes, I think so. I think yeah. you're right. And I think, you know, some people do it with alcohol and I like, yeah. you know, a good <laughs> glass of wine or whatever. Yeah. But food levels everyone. Also, it disarms certain people. And because people always think, whether it's in the art world, in the fashion world, in the food world, people always think that you're coming into a scenario with a plan. Mm. No one just has lunch with each other. Mm. Like if, I, if somebody calls me up and says, oh, I was wondering if you'd like lunch. And I say, oh, yeah, of course. They're like, Hmm. oh, do you want to know why? And I, I'd say, well, I didn't think there was a why, you yeah. know? Yeah. And you're right. I think the great thing about food you can start even talking about business or work but once the first morsels go into your mouth then, yeah. <laughs> it goes yeah. slightly yeah. off the yeah. other thing is really it's almost what you said projects deals breakups getting together dangerous liaisons you know 
ideas. I love eating in restaurants on my own. I get great oh, ideas. Do you? You I love eating in restaurants Why? on my own. What do you like about it? Because it's I feel grown up. <laughs> I feel like yeah. yeah, I feel like yeah. the movies, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I feel grown up and I just think, you know, this is this is a wonderful establishment. I can just admire it. I can look around and, and then you hear the murmurs and no one's looking at you. I mean they are because they're thinking, how come? But really all you can see are people eating, you see them move. It's like a Brunel movie. Yeah. I remember that you used to come. I mean it feels so long ago <laughs> yeah. now. But um I'd say come and meet me when I'm almost finished work. Yeah. You know, and so we'd we'd come at the end of the service, service and, yeah. and sit down and you'd come in a bit before and then I would be up and down. Yeah. I remember sometimes you'd get up and say, oh, I have to do this. And I'd say, no, go. Yeah, go. And you'd watch the restaurant winding down and everybody beautiful scene. come and talk to you. And it's do you remember the night scene. that you gave me a coat? And, okay, <laughs> and I was waiting and I was at the end and the restaurant was almost empty. And yeah. so I just put on this beautiful Dura coat and then everybody was putting it on. The receptionist was, was putting fantastic. it on and yeah. everybody, we were all so surreal. excited about the coat. Oh, thank you. And I think that restaurants are places where, Magic as you say, happens. the unexpected happens. Magic. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. When you create a dress, Mm -hmm. when you create the skirt that I'm wearing of yours right now, and the process of creating fashion and then it being worn and then it maybe lasting for centuries, but maybe not, and food, do you think that there's a kind of relation? I sometimes think that I make a work of art when I make a a a pear tart, and maybe it is a slight work of art. It's not like a Juro dress. And then it's eaten, and then it's gone. So you're judged by the moment if somebody's pear tart is too sweet or it it isn't cooked enough. Because fashion could be defined as temporary. Absolutely. What what is in fashion? But do you think there's a relationship between between that and food? Fashion and food? I, I do, but I think what you said about food is very interesting because it's true, there's a moment for food, and as soon as it's consumed... It's the memory that remains. But for the maker, who's like the creator of it, that's the only moment they feel they'll be judged. I don't like to think of what I do as fashion. I'm a fashion designer, but I'm not interested in fashion. I never have been. I'm interested in the culture of style. And that's not pompous. That just incorporates everything, you know. But at least with clothes, you really get the chance to see it on different women of different shapes, different ethnicities, different physiques you know i mean it's a very beautiful thing to see and you see it on people you don't know 
Sometimes I'm in New York or even in London or wherever in the world, and I see someone run across the road, and I think, oh my God, it's full winter yeah. 21, <laughs> full winter 12, yeah. you know? Yeah. That's nice. So I, I do have this constant reminder of the work in a way that for you, you have to keep creating it, you know? It's not, it comes and it goes, but it's, it's more sustaining, Ruthie, than a work of art. Food is life. Food is life, clothes are life. You know, yeah, clothes are life, but food is culture life. Culture is you know? life, yeah. And do you think that when you talked about food yes. in, in growing up, because yeah. your clothes are a reflection of also yes, growing up in, in Africa, do you think that your identity as a designer is to do with memory and history as well? Absolutely. I always say you don't know where you're going until you know where you've come from, mm. whether it's uh, creatively, sexually, wherever. You know, you just don't know. Emotionally, you can't say you're in love unless you've been in love before. Mm. You know? One of the greatest things that I got from my growing up and my existence was the cosmopolitan eye. And that's what my parents showed us. Look at everything. You know, we mix Nigerian with everything. You give everything its credence, even though you know where you're from. You know you respect yourself, but also look at everything. And I'm one of those children, you know, when you were a child, like really young, and you'd be given boxes of toys and left like in the corner and your parent or whoever was with you would turn around and they would take the toys out and they would expect you to put them back in the box to try and fit them in the little square. Well, I was the kid that always had them rearranged on the outside, always. Oh, so you rearrange. And uh, yeah. That's what you were saying about your cooking. Yeah. You rearrange. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is the other thing I have to say. This is not a sucker, but Ruthie, everyone that works at River Cafe or has worked at the River Cafe, the one thing they never lose is their love of food. Now, that might seem simple, mm. <laughs> but it's something that they saw and learned at the River Cafe. And you can see, especially when they're very young, you can see them looking for that love while they're working. And I think the love that they're looking for when you teach them how to prepare is what goes on our plate. So when I eat the botaga, it's not just spaghetti botaga. It's sort of a plate of love, you know? And by the time the lemon is squeezed on it, it's... It's like a kiss. <laughs> I was going to say that if there was a, a hint about if you make that spaghetti batarga, that last squeeze of lemon juice is crucial, isn't it? It's the one thing that yeah. you think, well, because there's so many different ways of making it, yeah. and some people do it very, very dry. dry they just yeah. put the grated batarga into yeah. the spaghetti, and we make it quite oily, oily and, and warm. But I think that what you need to do is cut that with that squeeze of lemon at the but end. But it's just the right, that's where the love comes in you oh. just it's cucina di mamma you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> but it's yeah. really that and I, yeah. I love that and i'll just say something about the botaga which is very interesting it's never i love savory but not salty yeah and you, it's the perfect thing right where you just want the portions are also perfect you never feel not as if too it's much. too much no. not too much so that brings me to our very last question of comfort and friendship and love, all the topics we've talked about, memories. And so if you were thinking about what is your comfort food, if you wanted food as comfort, would you go back to your early days of food, the food your mother made you, or would you think of comfort food as a particular dish? Or what would be your comfort food? I think I would think of comfort food as anything, because I'm very open. So I also love Indian food, South Indian food. Mm. I love Japanese food. But I think of comfort food as food that somehow 
seems to have the integrity of the ingredients within it. And people just took the time and the effort to use the best ingredients, not necessarily the most expensive, just the best, and think about everything to do with how it feels, a sense of safety that you get when it goes in your mouth. And I think instead of picking specific food, I always look for food that reminds me of a place. For instance? Of course, River Cafe for anywhere in Italy. I mean, I love, I love Rome, you know? I love Rome, so I'll try and order something with the cheese that I used to eat in Rome mm. <laughs> a lot. I still do. Lagos, I love uh, jollof rice with fried plantain. Fried plantain, I could that could be my last meal. Okay. Uh, it's just, and soft. What is, what is fried plantain? Fried plantain, plantain comes from almost the banana family, but it's large. It's full of potassium, so it's very good for you when it's boiled. The treat as a child was we would have fried plantain chopped up, fried, and then we'd have it with a delicious omelette. Mm. My mother used to do that. And fried plantain, I mean, sometimes if I'm eating any Nigerian food, like something with rice, I can't quite, I don't feel I've eaten it well until I have fried plantain. Oh, well, that's, <laughs> and that is comfort. I mean, that is yeah. what, you know, you've described. It's comfort, it's memory. It's yeah. memory, it's, it's association. It's memory, I love fried plantain. And then yeah. when you are feeling that you need comfort, maybe you also need the memory of when you didn't Absolutely. need comfort. And, and I love the fact that I can think of having it with any of your sauces. Like, I'll just have that and a sauce. And it's not about the easiness of it, because it has to, for me, it has to be just so right, sliced in a certain way. Slightly salted and fried in a certain way. And it's easy. I'll cook it for you. Let's do it. Thank you, Jura. Thank you, Ruthie. Love you. Bye. To visit the online shop of the River Cafe, go to shoptherivercafe.co.uk. River Cafe Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.